Today's episode is brought to you by Go Imagine. Go Imagine is a handmade marketplace donating 100% of profits to charity. With a mission to help children in need, Go Imagine is a movement of makers and artists growing their own handmade businesses while supporting a marketplace focused on social good. Learn more about Go Imagine's new concept for a caring economy at goimagine.com. Thank you so much, Go Imagine. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 205 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about tech editing and mentoring with my guest, Tien Connaughton. Tien is a Massachusetts-based knit and crochet designer and a technical editor, working with magazines and major brands, and she's also a business coach for handmade and fiber artists. She lives by the motto, a rising tide lifts all boats, and this is evident in all that she does, from writing books to creating online courses and coaching programs. Her work prioritizes helping women, particularly Black women and women of color, to create the life they want, doing the work that they love, which society doesn't always encourage. Tian currently has a new free course out called Get Published, which is created in partnership with Nitpicks and We Crochet. Get Published is a six-part video series for aspiring and experienced designers who are ready to take their designing to the next level by adding third-party publications. Each video takes you through the process from creating your proposal all the way to the publication going live. And the course is available now to binge watch on demand. Tian Connaughton, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So I know that you live with your family now in Western Massachusetts, and I was out there this summer hiking Mount Greylock with my mm-hmm. son, and it is just such an incredibly beautiful area with a really uh, rich art scene, too. I wonder, when did you move there? So I moved from Jamaica. That's where I was born. I lived there until I was about 11, 12, moved to the U.S. We moved to Connecticut. And when I got married to my husband in 2001, we moved to Springfield, Massachusetts. So I left my state of Connecticut, moved to Massachusetts. And when our son turned five, we decided to move out of the city into this quiet country space with almost four acres because I had in my mind that I would start a little farmlet with goats and sheep and chickens and all that stuff. And after about 12 years, I only still only have chickens. (laughs) No sheep yet, but we'll see. And um, so you grew up in Jamaica. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. What were your parents doing for work when you were growing up? And what were you interested in? So my father was uh, in construction. He built houses. He built the house we lived in there. And my mother would be what you would call a homemaker. Right? She raised chickens. She did, you know, side 
things that moms did to bring an extra cash into the household. Um, and for me, education was everything. I read a lot. Um, as an immigrant, <laughs> you only have a few choices for occupation, engineering, doctor, lawyer, nurse, right? So those were the things I was led to go into. Um, but after a few years in college, that wasn't for me. I went the liberal art route and now in the fiber space, right? So after college, I went into finance and accounting, and now I'm doing this thing that I don't even think my parents really understand <laughs> what I do. So, okay, so you um, you were working after college in um, kind of corporate America, it sounds yeah. like. Um, yeah, and I'm wondering, um, well, maybe you can first tell us exactly kind of what you were doing there and also whether some of the skills maybe that you developed during that time cross over at all, even though it is so different into what you're doing now. Yeah. So I was doing finance, uh, corporate finance and accounting. Um, and while I was in that space, I was listening to a lot of podcasters who were doing a lot of creative things. Yours was one of them, you know, on my hour plus commute to work every day, you know, I'm driving in the car by myself. I would just listen to podcasts with all these amazing women doing creative things. And that was never something that I thought was possible for me because, duh, immigrant, you had to go into a certain field. You had to be a professional. And crafting was never a professional. I don't even think I had a hobby growing up as a kid. It was either read or go do your homework, right? So having that time when I was traveling, you know, an hour to work, driving and listening to all these creative podcasts, it just started to trigger something in me like, hmm, I wonder. And from that, I wonder, I kept listening to more podcasts, reading more books and trying to figure out how can I leave this corporate world that I really didn't love. I mean, it, it was OK, but I didn't really love it. It was just what I was expected to do. But having listened to so many different women doing things that they really, really love and had that passion, I started wondering, could I have that passion? Could I use some of the time and money that I was generating for my corporate day job to try to help me to build something that I actually really love? Okay. And at that time, I know you um, you didn't learn to knit or crochet as a child. As you just said, you barely had a hobby at all. So... Um, how did you learn how to, was it crochet first? How did you learn how to crochet? Yeah, it was crochet. And thank you to corporate. I learned from a coworker, this older woman that, you know, she was there crocheting at the kitchen table in the, in the um, break room and she would crochet and we'd be watching the news. And this was around nine 11. So we'd be watching the news on TV and she would just be stitching and her hands would just be constantly moving and she'd be watching the screen and having a conversation with us and I'm like how the heck are you doing this and and just talking to her it just kind of had that common effect just watching her her hands just move and after about a month or so I asked her I'm like can I try could you teach me and she's like yeah let's go to the Walmart down the road and that's where we started we just picked up some some cheap yarn some hooks and Every day we were just making square things or rectangle things or whatever shape it would be because, you know, 
in the beginning, my crochet was not straight. So it was just some wonky things that we would make. But it kind of relieved that kind of pressure from corporate and from what was happening in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the fact that you went to Walmart to get your initial supplies, because I think it's a great reminder that for many people who are just getting started in fiber, that's where they go. They go to Walmart or one of the big box craft stores to purchase supplies. They don't start out with the expensive, you know, hand-dyed yarns or anything like that. And there's no shame in that. That's actually the great entry point for the majority of people. Absolutely. And for many years, I did not know what a local yarn store was. It was Walmart. And then when I discovered Joann's and Michael's, it was like the heavens opened (laughs) just to go from Walmart to another big box store. And it wasn't until years later I discovered Webs, which is local to me, that I was like, okay, this is serious. Yeah. How this did you major. how did you find out about Webs? Was it from somebody online? No, I have relatives who obviously worked there. My brother-in-law worked there when he was in college. And he would always tell me about this yarn place. And I'm like, okay, I know Joanne's. I know uh, Michael's. I don't need this other Webs place. Right. And eventually I kind of listened to him. Don't tell him that. (laughs) And I went and explored and I found and I walked in. And if you are familiar with webs, it's this massive yarn store you walk into. And it's at first it's overwhelming. And then there's the smell and then there's all the yarn and all the colors. But it's just like a little piece of heaven. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's that's great. That's a great journey. So, okay, so you learned how to crochet from your colleague while still in your corporate job. And um, and then you learned how to knit sometime not too long after that. Is that right? It was a while after. It was? Okay. <laughs> it was a while. Uh, and unfortunately, and this is embarrassing because my mother-in-law does crochet, uh, does knit. And she always, for years, was like, come on, let's, let's knit together. And I'm like, nah, one hook. It's all I need. I don't need this two needle craziness. This is just madness wielding around two needles. Nah, don't need it. And it wasn't until years later when I started watching uh, uh, the HGTV show Nitty Gritty. Um, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. My son was a toddler then and I was just like home with him. I took some time off from work and I was home with him and I was bored. And I started watching that show and I saw what crochet was and I saw what knitting looked like. And the difference, they were similar, but it was just like the drape was different. The fabric was different. And then I met, I didn't meet, but I saw uh, Shirley Payton on that show. The first time I saw a black woman in the arts doing this work. And I was just like, oh my God, she kind of looked like she could be like an aunt. Right. And it was just kind of like that triggered something for me. Like, okay, if she can do it, then I can do it. And so how did you learn? Did you go back to your mother-in-law or did you learn on YouTube? I went to books. Books? <laughs> YouTube wasn't a big thing in, back in 2006. Oh, no, no, right. <laughs> yeah, so I, I went to books. I went to the library a lot because, like I said, my son was a toddler. I was home with him, so we would do those mommy and me times. And then while he's doing that, I would go over to the craft section and grab some books. So every day I, I was coming home with new books and just kind of practicing that way. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, I told my mother-in-law, she started showing me some things. Right. But I'm one of those people, I, I like to learn on my own. Mm-hmm. 
I don't really need you to kind of like push me into it because then I'm not I'm not going to do it. I have to discover it on my own. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Okay. And so um, how long after you actually learned these skills did you begin designing? Um, because it's one thing to learn to crochet well and to learn to knit well, but it's actually quite a different thing to design patterns for both of those things. Yeah. I mean, it didn't. once I started uh, knitting, the design bug hit really fast. Because I was trying to figure out, okay, I like this pattern from this book, but I don't like this thing. And I don't know why it took me learning to knit to want to design. Because I didn't really see a lot of interest in... It could be because I didn't see a lot of interest in pattern and crochet at the time. I was just seeing blankets, scarves, rectangles, square things. And with knitting, I was seeing interest in shapes. I was seeing garments. I was seeing bags. I was seeing other things. And I think that might have triggered why I wanted to design my own things because I was seeing so many interesting things with knitting. And I was just going through patterns and not liking the length of something, not liking the width of something and starting to modify patterns. And once I figured out how to modify patterns, it was just like game on. I can I can start from scratch. I can calculate the stitches to cast on. I can cal- calculate how wide I want this thing. And what was... So it was just- what was the first um, pattern that you ended up publish, publishing? I think it was a, a fingerless mitts. I was working on a fingerless mitt from a book and I just didn't like it. I couldn't get, I couldn't understand it. So I'm like, forget that. I'm just going to start my own. And I measured my wrist and I did some cast on and I did some very crude shaping. It's not, it's, I think it's still up on Ravelry and the writing back then was awful, but that's how I started, just making some fingerless mitts because it's something I wanted to wear that I couldn't figure out how to use someone else's pattern to make it. And I'm wondering what, because you do coach a lot of um, aspiring designers now and you were an aspiring designer at that time, I'm wondering what kind of hurdles you felt like you faced, you know, trying to break into a new um, industry really as a, a designer? I think for me, it took me a lot longer to quote unquote break in because I was just hiding for a long time because I didn't see anyone that looked like me. I thought that you had to have, you know, long blonde hair to be a model. You had to be a certain size and I wasn't that size. So I wouldn't model my own things. And I was just kind of like, even my avatar on Ravelry was like just a cartoon. A cartoon cat. <laughs> I wasn't even a human person because I wasn't a, I wasn't confident in myself that people would take me seriously, looking the way I did if I presented my whole self. And I think that has really helped me with the students that I work with to like, hey, just be yourself. Just show up fully as yourself because that's how you will reach people who resonate with you. Then when I talk about, you know, fitting into a sweater and being brave about wearing it where a few years ago, I probably would not have shown like, you know, that I have this baby belly, right? My kid is 17. So it's like, it's not, it's not baby fat anymore, but it's just being brave about, Hey, I'm wearing this sweater. It doesn't look as smooth as it used to, but that's okay. Because I've been, I've been able to create it to fit the body I am in right now. And I'm darn proud of this body. This brought me through this pandemic. So when I talk about 
you know, where I've been, I try to also talk about all the the mental struggles that I went through for myself because it wasn't easy coming up to where I am now. It took a lot of me pushing myself and getting out of that corner of being that wallflower that's like, oh, people will discover me if I put out good work because that doesn't work, right? We always think, oh, I just need to have like the best patterns in the world. I just need to do this and people will find me. But I learned the hard way that I can't just hope people will find me. I have to actually go out there and put myself out there and share what I'm about, share my values, share that I am for folks who look like me, even folks who don't look like me. But I want to have this this position where if I, as I'm learning something, I want to make sure that the people coming up behind me is learning that too so that they don't have to spend 10 years trying to get to where I am but it could take a shorter period of time for them. And was there um, a defining moment you can, or a pivotal moment you can point to where you actually did show your face or did show your body um, or you just show yourself in a way that um, got some positive feedback or attention from your audience that made you realize, okay, I don't need to be a cat avatar. I can be myself. I think it's when I was about to hit 40, like that, that pivotal age where I was just like, I don't, I've, I've survived this long. I've done so much, right? I don't care anymore. And I think for me, that's what had to happen. I had to hit that milestone in my age where I'm like, I've accomplished so much stuff. I, I have this amazing family. I have this amazing house. I have all these things. Why am I still afraid? And I think hitting that age milestone where I, I've accomplished so much that I can just like, hey, I've done this. And I don't think I would have felt like that in my 20s when I was just still trying to discover myself and trying to make my way out in the, in the world. But I hope that I can show others that you don't have to wait till you're 40 to get there. You just have to kind of look at where you've, where you've been, what you've done, and to appreciate that you did a lot. Even if you are 20, you've achieved a lot. And you are worthy of showing up fully as yourself. And I think for me, it was just me hitting that milestone age. But don't do that. <laughs> Please, don't do that, you guys. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Go Imagine, and Go Imagine's founder, John Lincoln. My name is John Lincoln. I'm the founder of Go Imagine. And what is Go Imagine? So Go Imagine is a handmade marketplace that's donating 100% profits to charity. We're actually the first ever marketplace to donate all our profits to charity. And we're really a community of makers and artists in the United States that are working together to grow our handmade businesses while also helping children in need. And what does that mean when you say donating profits to charity? Is that something that the makers themselves are doing? Yeah, you know, people ask that a lot. Um, no, so so the whole business concept is that our company is the one donating our profits to charity. Makers still make their money like they would normally make. Um, like any marketplace, you have your you know three to five percent transaction fee, uh, and you keep the rest of the money. And go imagine our makers, it's the same thing. The big difference for us is we've created a model where we're not only donating all of the transaction fee to help children in need, but we're also um, donating any profits we get above that. Uh, from our membership fees to to charity. And, you know, the big thing here, Abby, is this model isn't new. Um, 
I'm sure if you heard of Newman's own before, it's a salad oh, dressing yeah. company. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so Newman's own salad dressing, salsa, pasta sauce, they've been doing this for, for 40 years. They've been donating hundred percent profits to charity. Uh, and they've donated well over half a billion dollars to charity through this exact same model. So we get a lot of people who are first confused by the idea of a, of a company looking to donate their profits to charity, but this has been proven time, time and time again with other companies like Newman's own. So tell us where we can go to get more information about Go Imagine. Yeah, easy enough. You go to goimagine.com. Uh, since we're, we're on your, your podcast with makers, I'm sure. Uh, scroll to the bottom. You'll see become a seller. You can see a lot of the information there and what it means to be a maker and seller and member on Go Imagine. Uh, and for your, your podcast, uh, Abby, we are going to have a coupon code. Anyone who wants to become a member, you'll get your first month free by using the code Alliance21. That's all lowercase, Alliance21. 21, you'll get your first month free. Uh, and also make sure to check out our Facebook community. We have a um, a, a very robust community on Facebook at uh, Go Imagine, the, the Makers Only group. Uh, and you can get to meet thousands of makers that are already on our platform if you join our, join our Facebook community. That's awesome. Thank you so much, John. No, thank you, Abby. Thank you so much, Go Imagine. And now back to my conversation with Tian. Um, so you left your corporate job and you knew how to crochet and you had this one pattern for knitting in these fingerless gloves that was up on Ravelry. So talk a little bit about how you actually built this business. It sounds like patterns, maybe self-published patterns were the first income stream. So how did it develop over time to actually become a business? Um, so, Yeah definitely self-published patterns was how I kind of built my confidence to be able to do other things. But I think for me, when the business really started was when I started getting serious about third-party publication and working with other publishers to stand out and to get more notoriety and more uh, exposure, right? Because self-publishing, great, I could sell one or two patterns and make five dollars here and there but if i sell a pattern to a publication i'm making hundreds of dollars with that one pattern and then when the rights come back then i can sell it again but that's how i really built my business Um, that's the model i was going with is to reach a bigger audience through somebody else's um someone else's uh audience right so if i was so i would work with interweave i publish with them I publish a lot with nitpicks and we crochet and they have a bigger brand. Um, so being able to submit designs and make more money off one pattern allowed me to do other things that I really wanted to do more passionate projects, like put out self published patterns that eh, it didn't really fit a publication, but it's something that I really wanted to put out there. So it's having that kind of uh, business model where I was getting I was getting the bulk of my revenue from third party publication that could supplement the other projects that I really wanted to do. And from that, I was able to show other designers how I was able to build that business model and show them that, hey, that five dollar pattern is great. It's a great starting point. It's a way for you to build your confidence and make some revenue. But if you want to make more and have this sustainable lifestyle, you got to think bigger. And that's what I've always been about. How can I take this thing that I love and make it bigger? 
And so those first publications that you were able to get into, were you just looking on those publications like Interweave or Nitpicks, websites, call for submissions, following those guidelines and sending it in? Or did you go to a show and forge a new relationship with an editor and go from there? How did you actually get just those first ones published? So the first one, I think I studied that magazine for maybe a couple of years before I even submitted, because I'm one of those people like, I need to know exactly their writing style, exactly the kind of things that they're looking for. And I think for me, it was really looking at nitpicks. They had their um, IDP program like a decade ago when they first started their independent designer partnership program. And I submitted to that, even though it wasn't like it is today, um, that was one of the first ways that I got into a bigger market. Um, and that was me following nitpicks for a long time and kind of really understanding how they kind of set up what they're doing and how they did what they did. So I submitted to them. And it's the same with when I work with Interweave. I was buying their magazines for years before I even submitted. And for me, it's just me wanting to know exactly what that publication is about. Are we in alignment? Are their style really in alignment with who I am and what I want to put out into the world? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice to really study what their point of view is all about before submitting. You're much more likely to get accepted if it if the project and the writing style, et cetera, aligns with the way that they're already publishing. So I think that's really smart advice. And um, I know you haven't yet written a book of patterns. Is that something that you want to do at some point? It's a huge, huge effort to do something like that. But I wondered, since you have designed so many pieces for magazines, whether a book is in your future. Oh, I would love to. I have so many ideas of books, of different types of books I want to write. I want to write pattern books, knit and crochet. I want to write novels. I want to write more books to help people. So I I have a lot of ideas. I just hope I, I get to the age where I can actually do it. And how did you begin mentoring um, or offering business consultancy to aspiring designers? Did people, I'm imagining people like DMing you on Instagram, asking questions, or how did you forge that first client relationship? Yeah, I mean, I was talking about business stuff on Twitter, if you remember Twitter. Yeah, (laughs) early, early Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, and just talking about businessy stuff like that. And then a few people would reach out and would be very sporadic, because I didn't know what marketing was all about. I just knew how to put the thing out that I liked. And then I started really studying marketing. And then it wasn't until I got onto, you know, Instagram and more into Facebook that I really started to market and say, hey, I used to get DMs and questions about certain things. Now I'm going to put together packages and offer different kind of uh, programs to help people. Right, because I was seeing, especially with the design end piece, I was seeing a lot of designers come through and they were just like, I don't know how to do this, or how did you format this, or how did you do X, Y, and Z? So instead of me, you know, talking to just one person, I would just put out like a news blast 
on Twitter and Facebook and just kind of talk about that topic. And from there, I would get clients. Yeah, and it's great to follow that demand, right? So I think it's so important to just listen. Like, what are people asking? What are they asking about? What are you getting asked about more than once? Um, Mm -hmm. And using that information to create a product that will meet that demand rather than necessarily coming up with some idea yourself that maybe the market doesn't want. So you're more likely to succeed if you're listening carefully to the suggestions and questions that come your way based on what you are putting out into the world. Yeah, and I did that too especially with patterns, right? When I would market my patterns, I would talk about, hey, I did this. I did, you know, it's because I wanted this instead of talking to the person I was trying to get to knit and crochet this thing. So it's really that mindset shift around. It's not about what I wanted anymore. It's what I can provide to the people who are talking to me and asking me questions. And it's really that mindset shift that really helps you to, as a business owner, whatever your business is, to really reach the people who really want what you have to offer because no longer it's about hey I can do this thing for you no it's what do you need and how can I support you yeah absolutely so you created I think they're both ebooks is that right yeah. two self-published ebooks that teach people how to do this so tell us about each of those um, and kind of what they contain so people can kind of think through whether this would be something that would meet their needs yeah. So the first one I wrote was uh, how to start designing, because when I started designing, it was just a mess. <laughs> it was just a crapshoot. I just didn't know what I was doing. So I created that ebook to help new designers who were kind of thinking about, hey, I might want to do this thing, but I don't know exactly how to start or what the steps are. So I created how to start designing um, and that's available on my website. And then from that, I was seeing a lot of designers who didn't know how to market. They were just talking about, hey, my pattern isn't selling. I feel sleazy when I'm talking about it. So I created the pattern launch plan, which is really to help my designers to think about marketing differently. It's not about shamelessly self-promoting your work, because at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about what your pattern can do for your audience. And that's why I created that book. So it's really a sequence of learn how to design. And then once you have that design, let's learn how to market that pattern. And now you've got an online class as well in partnership with Nitpicks. And um, that's super exciting and an ex- interesting experience to record an online class. Um, so I'm wondering how that partnership came about and what that experience was like for you. Yeah. So at the height of all the diversity conversations in the fiber industry, I I saw that conversation going in a different direction. I didn't just want to see black and brown folks on the cover of magazines because that's what a lot of people were talking about. I want to see more brown models. I want to see more black models. And yeah, that's great. I want to see that too. But I wanted to also see people on the inside who are working on these patterns and not just you know, just having a black figure on the pages of the magazine. So I pitched this idea to Nitpicks and We Crochet early 2020 and say, hey, I want to see more people of color in the fiber industry designing. Mm -hmm. And I think the barrier of entry is not that they don't know how to do it necessarily. It's because 
I, no, I guess the barrier of entry is not knowing how to do it. It's not that they are stupid or they don't have the talent or anything like that. But the reason we weren't seeing a lot of uh, a diverse group of designers is because we don't see ourselves. We don't see examples. We don't see representation. And also, it feels like, for me, I'm going to say this for me, it feels like a click. When I was starting out, I didn't see a lot of people. I, I would reach out to folks asking them the process. And it was just kind of like crickets. Huh. People wouldn't respond back. It's like, I'm not trying to take anything away from you. Because there's more than enough room for you to design and for me to design. And for all of us. And that's sort of really the, the idea I kind of went into this with is I can be a designer and I can make money and you can be a designer and make money. So I wanted to bring as much information out into the world as possible with the focus and the initiative being, I want to see more people that look like me in the fiber industry. I want to see more um, black girls, more black men, transgender, non-binary folks come out and say, hey, I want to be a designer too and have tools um, and have tools that they can follow step by step, right? And not saying, oh, I asked this person and I didn't get a response. Or I asked this person and I didn't get a response. Because I do get that from clients I work with where they've reached out to people and it's just like crickets. And I'm like, in this day and age, 2021, you're still hoarding information. So that's the goal. Right. That's the goal of get published. I don't want to hoard information as much information I have. I want to help others, black, white, brown, whatever. I want you to have the information so that you can go out and pitch your idea to a publication. Even if it's your very first design, we walk you through the process of, you know, submitting what to expect if you get accepted, what to expect if you are not accepted and to know that. It's not you, right? There's a lot of mindset work in this um, course as well because I don't want people to get rejected and think, oh, I'm awful, I'm the worst designer ever, I'm never doing it again because that's not the case, right? So you get tactical, practical information, but you also get that mindset work that says, hey, if if you got rejected, it's fine. It just wasn't the right time. It wasn't you. It was just not a perfect fit right now for this publication for this issue, try again. And the beautiful thing about this course is that I do interview publishers who say the exact same thing, right? They talk to you, they talk about when they get all these submissions come through, they can only choose a handful. And that put into perspective, like, hey, you're competing. Well, not really competing. You're, you're, you're trying to get slots that are very limited and they have this quick turnaround that they have to make these quick decisions so if you're not accepted it's not you personally they're not looking out and say hey abby you suck no you're not going in the magazine they're just looking at the submission and the group of submission that they receive for that publication for that issue and saying how does each of each of these fit and it's not anything personal against you abby (laughs) it's just a matter of being cohesive and i know that 
Um, because you are on our H&H planning committee, you told a story um, during that meeting recently about um, attending a trade show and sort of feeling as though there weren't enough people who look like you who were there. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and what you would love to see in the future. Yeah. So the first time and the only time I went to TNNA, um, I walked in and you know, I was expecting this very colorful space. I was expecting to see not just colorful in the yarn and the fiber, but in the people. Different. I, I was hoping that I would see so many people that I admired, which I did, except that a lot of the people I admire were not black or brown, right? Because I didn't see those folks in the industry. But when I went to TNNA that very first time and my only time, I walked in and I was just... I didn't feel comfortable. And I don't know if you understand or your audience understand, but as a woman, imagine walking into a bar and it's just men. How comfortable would you feel? So it's that same mindset when a person of, of color walk into a space that's very white and we're walking in and we're just like, is this a safe space? And I was there to meet a publisher that I would work with for a, a little while. And it was a a white woman, which is fine. But as I'm walking around and I'm looking at different booths, the only person of color I saw was Diane Ivy of Lady Die Yarn. And it was just like, we kind of like <laughs> went towards each other because I kind of, I knew her before then. But it was just kind of like, this is just ridiculous that of all the hundreds of, and millions of people in this industry, there's just the two of us, right? The only two black women in the space. And it was a little nerve wracking because it was very expensive to go there. And I wasn't just looking for people that look like me, but I wanted to be in the space where I felt like I belong and not having that, that not, not having people that look like me is only one piece of the connection that's missing from a lot of these trade shows and things like that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that um, and what the work that we need to do as a community to diversify who exhibits at show, who attends shows, um, who teaches at shows, all of those things. So um, that's really important to hear. And I just want to make one point. Sure. And I'm not saying that to just only have a diverse group of people without having, you know, the right talents or credential. I'm not just saying just to pick people just because of what they look like, because that's not what I'm saying. And I don't want that to be um, misconstrued as, hey, we're just going to pick any old person who is black or brown to be included in these spaces. But to take that extra effort to find those talents in your industry and invite them in and not just invite them in and say, hey, come here and come be this, this space but to make the space also safe and make it a place that we all want to be at. Absolutely. That's really important. And um, I know that you have um, some creative bug classes coming up as well. So that's another, as we talked about building this business, so self-publishing patterns to start with, then working with 
a variety of magazines to widen your reach um, and bring in a little bit more income as well. And then um, creating these two eBooks to teach and to teach clients how to, um, to get into designing and then teaching an online class about that same sort of business topic with nitpicks. The creative bug classes are another piece and you can start to see all of these little um, pieces coming together that really creates um, for many people who work in the crafts industry, a business has got to be created about multiple with multiple income streams. So talk a little bit about your creative bug classes. I don't know anything about them, so I'm interested to hear um, what you're doing with them. Yeah, so I have four classes that will be coming out and they're staggered. Um, and I'm not sure the dates on the others, but the first one is coming out later this month. October 20th is the date I heard. So fingers crossed that it will happen. Um, but speaking of multiple streams of income, yeah, um, I am a big proponent of not just having one, all your eggs in one basket, right? But I do stress that that has to be done strategically and not trying to have 10 baskets set up all at once because, you know, you have to, you're going to break some eggs. <laughs> so be strategic about the your business model and how many streams of income you want and not rushing to create an, a ton of them all at once. But to start with one, get really good at that, then build another, get really good at that one, then add on another one. And I like to think of it as a staircase where you're just kind of going up one stair, you level off a little bit, get really good, then you add another one. And that's how I think of my my uh, multiple streams of income. But getting back to my creative bug class, I just wanted to point out that about the multiple streams of income that it didn't just happen overnight. It's been over a decade in the works. But for the creative bug class, the first one is crochet a lacy tee. And last year I created a knitted tee with a lacy panel up the front. It was very simple, very fun, came in a lot of sizes. And I had some crocheters ask, hey, where, where's the uh, crochet version? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. Um, and then a few months later, when uh, Creative Bug reached out to me and asked if I would create, you know, a few classes for their program, I was like, ding, ding, that's the one that I'll do first. Right. And it was it was a matter of us, you know, talking about it was really following up to what we were talking about before, where it's not about you just putting out things out into the world that you want, but really listening to your audience. And I had folks who wanted to make the crochet version of this knitted tee. So that was how that class came about. And it's by listening. Yeah, absolutely. And did you, I know it's COVID time. So the process with Creative Bug is somewhat different from prior to COVID, but did you fly out to San Francisco or did you have a crew come to you? How did the filming work? Yeah, we flew out to San Francisco. We were there for about a week. Of course, we had our shots, double vaccinated, all that good stuff, double masked the whole time. Since the time we got out of our cars at the airport in Connecticut, double masked all the way until we got into our rental in California, which is a long day to be masked, but I have, I have a kid at home. I can't get sick. So it was taking all those precautions. And while we were there the first few days, it was very light. You know, it's a very open room, very airy room. It was only four of us there. We we're all distance. 
right? And while we weren't recording, we were wearing our mask. So it was really safe. And I really enjoy that they were conscientious about <laughs> the safety. Everyone had their vaccines. So it was just kind of like, I know we're all safe, but let's be extra, extra safe because we're here together for a week. And I don't want any of these guys to go home and bring anything to their, their families as well. And what did you um, learn maybe about yourself or, um, or how was that experience of actually, you know, stitching while on camera having to say what you were doing? I mean, I filmed online classes myself and I know, you know, you've got all of these cameras pointed at you, you're wearing a microphone and um, you mess up, of course, because we all of do. Um, and so just talk a little bit about that process, because I think a lot of us watch Creative Bug trailers or our members and watch Creative Bug classes and wonder, well, how is this all created? Yeah. So you walk in and you're sweating bullets because it's like there's lights, there's cameras, and it's all scary and new. Right? Especially when they're micing you and you're like, oh, okay, calm down. But I mean, the experience is, it can be overwhelming if you haven't done that before, which I hadn't done that before. Um, having people, you know, tell you to look at this camera and then pause and then stitch here and, and do this. And, oh, that's not the word you're supposed to use. You know, you said double crochet instead of single crochet. So that was really interesting, having a crew that was there to help you and guide you and make sure that you put out the best product into the world. So that part was really, really amazing. I think for me, being an introvert, it was just kind of like, okay, it's going to take me a while to really warm up to this situation. I'm sweating bullets the whole time, but I'm just going to have my 40 plus year old self step in right, this diva persona and just kind of do the work and take, you know, take their critiques, take their feedback. Hey, look at the camera when you say this, say it like this, right? So it's really about being comfortable with being collaborative, because it's not just me saying any anything I want, however I want, but to really take their their advice because they know their audience. They know what their their viewers want to see and how their viewers are going to accept or not accept something that I say and how I present material. So it was really about me coming in with, this is what I want to teach. This is how I want to teach. But having that collaborative mindset of, hey, these are not my audience. This is not the people who normally would watch me and trying to figure out how to adjust to their market. Does yeah, that sense? yeah, it does. And I know for me, I felt that same way coming in. And then I was able to relax some when I realized that each of these people in the room has their own job. And so it's the person who's filming B-roll of your hands from above. Well, that person has a job. And then there's somebody who has, you know, the sound and somebody who has lighting and somebody who's filming straight on and all these things. And actually, they mess up too sometimes and don't catch the moment or whatever it is. And so each person there, just like you're just one of a team. And I like that collaborative idea, what you said too. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just thinking about it that way. You know, like we are all trying to put out this amazing product 
And it's not about us. It's not our ego. It's not right. about, oh, I need to look great on camera for whatever reason, or they're not going to sabotage me because they want to put out great work as well. So it's having that trust that we're all in this together with the same goal. Right. Absolutely. So interesting. And I also think about you when you first began with that first pattern and were really afraid to show who you were to the world coming so far. I mean, you said it's been like a decade or, or more, but still to say like, and now you have four creative bug classes where, you know, it's, it's, that's you. There's no hiding. That's, wild. <laughs> that's wild. Because if you had told me that I would be doing this 10 years ago, I'd be like, get out of here. That is crazy. Not me on camera. Right. And now I just jump on a zoom any old time. <laughs> and I just like record myself and I have a membership program that I get on zoom every month and I coach them around. Right. And I just ended a, a tech editing class and we were getting on zoom every day. And I think a decade ago I would have been like, Oh, I'm just going to have my camera off during zoom and just talk. And now it's just like, you know what? This is who I am. This is what you get. And I hope you like it. But if you don't, there's somebody else for you. That's, there's another coach, there's yeah. another designer, there's somebody else for That's you. It's such great personal growth. And it's great that, you know, the, cra- the crafts industry can help people with that. So that's really great to hear. Let's talk a little bit about technical editing, because you're a technical editor, as well as all of these different things. And I think for, you know, sometimes a, a newer pattern designer might think, well, I don't have the cash to put toward you know, hiring somebody to help me with this one pattern that I'm going to sell for $5. I I just can't swing that. But what are they missing out on? So what does a technical editor in knit and crochet specifically do? So the technical editor makes sure that your pattern is correct. It is consistent, right? It makes sure they make sure that there's no errors. And of course, we're all human. So we might I'm not going to say it's going to be absolutely perfect every single time because we are humans, but our goal as technical editors is to make sure the stitch counts are correct. It, we make sure that when someone else goes through the pattern and they're knitting and crocheting from that pattern, they will end up with a piece that is similar to what the designer intended, right? So if a if a designer comes to me and they're like, oh, I can't afford to spend on tech editing because I'm only going to sell this pattern for $5. Then my question back to you is, will you even make $5 from this pattern if you don't have a tech edited? Because if you're not confident that this pattern is amazing, are you going to show up and actually promote this pattern? Are you going to even put it out into the world or you're just going to sit on it and just kind of be scared that somebody might knit this and it might not be great. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. So it's that mindset shift of, Hey, I want to put out the best piece of pattern, this best product as possible out into the world. And if you're just going to say, well, I can't afford it. Then you just can't afford to put out that pattern in the first place. Because if it's not good, then you're going to get a lot of negative reviews. People are just going to write you off as not a good designer. So regardless of how pretty your sample is and anything like that, if people can't follow your pattern, they're never going to buy anything else from you. They're not going to recommend you to their friends. They're not going to bring you to their yarn 
their their uh, group their group knitting and crocheting and share you with their friends. But once you have that really great pattern that's been tech edited, you'll have that confidence to go out and show it off more than you would if you didn't. Yeah. So you just can't afford not to have your pattern yeah. tech edited. I love that connection between your confidence marketing and the quality of the product. And I think it also carries over to, if you can do this as well, having professional photography and even a professional model, if you can do that too, if it's a garment or a wearable item. Um, Because again, when the pattern cover is gorgeous, you feel really confident marketing it. So if the product is really good and the cover looks really good, it's it's going, I, in my experience, especially with photography, it really um, pay, it pays you back really fast. Yeah, and it's your calling card. I mean, why wouldn't you have like the best business card be this amazing pattern, either in looks, you know, pretty photo and quality of the photo. And that's what I just taught like a group of uh, new tech editors about when they're saying, you know, what if people don't want to hire me? And I'm like, you're not selling them on this pattern. You're selling them on their ability to make more money from this pattern because of the confidence that you um, tech edit in their patterns will allow for them to be able to shout it from the, the treetop, from the rooftop and say, hey, I have this amazing pattern that I'm super proud of. Right. And yeah. If you're not proud of it. You're not going to shout about it. Right. You're just going to kind of whimper and kind of whisper. And, <laughs> and that doesn't sell. Yeah. That's so interesting. And in talking to tech editors about how to market their own services to and convince pattern designers that they're worth paying for. So, um, yeah, there's so many facets to this. It's really, it's so interesting. And I know you also, one of the things that you would um, talk about in some of these courses and eBooks and programs is around getting yarn support, especially when maybe, you know, going out and buying yarn, skeins of yarn is not in your budget. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how, um, a newer designer might go about appropriately seeking yarn support for a pattern. Yeah. And I made sure that this was one of the lessons inside of the get published uh, course, because this is a question I get all the time. How do I get nitpicks to send me yarn? And I use nitpicks and we crochet a lot as examples because I work with them a lot and they are super easy to work with. Right. So if you are looking to work with a, a yarn company, First, think about that yarn company. What kind of things are they looking for? Who are they looking to work with? Are they a big company or are they just this little dyer? Because the way you would approach approach a big company like Nitpicks and We Crochet is different than how you would approach a dyer who do like a batch, small batches, right? So for example, if I wanted to knit a sweater, I could go to Nitpicks and have no problem say, hey, I want to knit this sweater. It's going to be top down. It's going to have cables, stripes, all that stuff. You want to give them a lot of details about what you are intending to make. Give them a deadline too. Like I plan on publishing this in the fall. Give them some sort of timeline. If I had a sweater that I wanted to go to like a small batch company like Fully Spun or some other small batch I probably wouldn't go to them for a sweater's quantity because I know that their margin is so tight. They don't have 
the room to be sending me a sweater's quantity of yarn, right, compared to knit picks. So it's about approaching different dyers where they're at, right, and really talk about what's in it for them as well. And with anything that you're marketing, what is it in in this whole relationship for the person that you're asking for something from? If I'm asking yarn from a, a, a small batch dyer and I'm looking for a sweater, hey, I'm going to talk about my my Instagram is this many people. I intend to market it this way. This is the time frame I plan to publish. Maybe it's in time for a running back so I can give you a copy and you can do kits and Right. You really talk about how you can help that dyer with their business to grow, too, because it's not just you getting yarn and like, oh, thanks. Bye. It's about building relationships. And even with the big brands, you want to build relationships, but you can just ask in a different way. Yeah. And like with Creative Bug, it's that collaborative approach. And I think that having a collaborative approach is a really smart way Um, even with magazines, and even if you become a published author with one of the bigger publishers, it's always a collaboration between what you bring to the table and what they bring to the table and how you can both grow together and create a good product together. So Yeah. yeah, that's super wise advice for aspiring folks. And so I want to get to your um, recommendations, if that's okay with you. So um, one of the things that you wanted to recommend was Skillshare. And I know a lot of people take classes on Skillshare and Craft Industry Alliance. We have a discount with them for folks who want to sign up. So what are some of the classes that you've enjoyed on that platform? So lately, I've been wanting to write, not just, you know, nonfiction anymore. I want to get into fiction writing. Crazy. I don't know. Where did this come from? But I've been watching a lot of videos about writing and character development and plotting and all this stuff. And it's just like my mind is blown. And it's like I have so many ideas, but I just don't know how to put it all together. And the courses that I'm watching are really helping with that. That's great. So if you want to learn something new, take a look. There's a whole huge variety of courses there. And they're also doing working with some knitting and crochet designers too to create some really beautiful classes on Skillshare. There's a lot there. Yeah. Um, And then you also have been visiting your public library. Our public library here in town is under construction. So Mm -hmm. it's been closed for a few months. And I I was just talking with my daughter this morning and we're waiting for it to reopen at the end of the month. Yeah. So the first place we went to when we moved to this town was the public library because, duh, we're all nerds here. Um, And we go there all the time. I'm even on the board now for the last few years, Board of Trustees. So I spend a lot of time at the library. Well, not physically at the library because of COVID time. But I do bring home a bag full of books maybe every couple of weeks. I'm there all the time. The before times, before COVID, I would just bring my laptop, go into one of their rooms and just kind of like set up shop and just have, you know, a quiet space outside of my office to work. And then know that, you know, I could step out and chat to the librarians and like, all right, back to work where it's not so lonely. So I do miss that about my library. They're open right now, but I'm I'm not open to going out yet. Just quite yet. I'll give it a few more months. 
And I know that you've been reading a lot of books as well. And do you have any book recommendations for our listeners? Yes, um, I do. The book I'm reading right now is uh, Rachel Rogers' uh, We Should All Be Millionaires. I don't know if you're familiar I with know, her. I know, I'm not. Yeah, she is a, a black business owner, um, black woman. Uh, she's on Instagram. I think I met her on a creative live class. I saw her and I've just been kind of following her. I'm in her membership program. And she has this attitude of, you know, it's about making more money, not just for the sake of making more money, but because of the things that you can do with money. And one of the things that I've really learned from her is, yeah, I want to make a million dollars or more in my business, but I want to make that money just be, not just because, but I want to make that money so that I can do more of the things that I want to do, right? Last year, we made more money than we had the previous year. So we were able to make political donations. We were able to do different things. We were able to support Black Lives Matters and different programs. And I think one of the things I've learned from Rachel is it's not just about the money you make. It's the impact that you can make with it. So instead of me just like trying to hoard money like the Jeff Bezos of the world and going out into space for, I don't know the reason, it's about, you know, making change, right? It's about going into politics if I want to, or it's about donating to political parties that are in alignment with my values and my views. That's wonderful. And what a great note to end on. Tian, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much. I love your podcast. I've been listening to you for years before it was Craft, <laughs> Craft Alliance. I remember when you were doing, you know, while she naps, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a great concept. Just while your kids nap. <laughs> So thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. And thank you for listening to the show too. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Go Imagine. Go Imagine is a handmade marketplace donating 100% of profits to charity. With a mission to help children in need, Go Imagine is a movement of makers and artists growing their own handmade businesses while supporting a marketplace focused on social good. Learn more about Go Imagine's new concept for a caring economy at goimagine.com. Thank you so much, Go Imagine. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. <music>